0: And now the Big D and Bubba Weekly podcast.
1: Big D and Bubba, they have a show five Five days days a week, week. but they don't get to say everything that's on their mind, so they have an An extra one, and that's 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 how we get get the podcast, podcast, the podcast, (laughs) the podcast. (laughs) Oh yes, Big D and Bubba podcast, the podcast, the podcast. Big D and Bubba's podcast.
2: Jeez, Patrick, I realized you didn't really sing along because you know
3: (laughs) that Joe
2: Kalani is here, and so you really clammed up. I did kind
3: of like. Patrick had started to sing, I was going to walk out. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Okay, so before we dive into
3: everything,
0: um, first of all, I do want to say thank you to Pickle Jar. Pickle Jar is uh, the app and the sponsor, and if you love music, you need to download the Pickle Jar app. You can actually tip, you can show gratitude to your favorite artists and bands, and then support some really cool uh, uh, causes around town, plus you can watch exclusive content, got pics and videos and all kinds of stuff that you can't find anywhere else. Download the Pickle Jar app today at picklejar.com. It's good for your Droid, good for your Apple. Uh, life is good. And, uh,. Yeah, now we get to find out why Patrick wasn't singing yeah, along with his I little wouldn't, theme.
2: There. I, wouldn't either. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't either. Hey, uh, we'll introduce uh, one of the uh, legends and truly an icon in, in our industry is uh, Joe Galani, who is uh, joining us for the podcast. Welcome, Joe. Glad you're here, man. Glad to be here. Thanks for the
1: invitation. And, uh, if you've heard that name recently, it's because Joe is about to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame as wow, part of this year's class. That's which, huge, man. Mm-hmm.
3: Thank you. I I was
1: trying to figure out how many just pure record label executives are in the country music hall of fame. Like not counting like Chet who was an artist and then became head of a label, but like just guys who were just in record label positions and then got in, I want to say maybe six.
3: I don't think it's that. high. I don't think it's that many. Maybe Fogel song, Jerry, um, there was somebody else from the 60s.
1: Fred Foster, but I Fred mean, Foster. you know, I, yeah. So it's.
0: You guys are talking names <laughs> that I've I yeah. heard fleetingly, and I'm in this. I think for like the, the passive uh, podcast listener, they're like clueless. Who are these
3: people? I, I have no idea what you're even talking about. Well, well Fred, Fred Foster was the guy that founded Monument Records and signed Dolly Parton. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Jerry. Okay. Jerry was the guy that followed Chet. To run the label, and he produced and sign, he produced Charlie Pride, signed Ronnie Millsap. Uh, he was my boss, so I followed Jerry in RCA. So, um,
1: and then and you signed like a couple of guys, yeah. like I don't know
2: Alabama. You know, <laughs> how do you know? Like, when do like, you do you know uh, Alabama? And you're like you hear an artist, and you're like, yes. Like, do you know immediately, or is it? Are there people coming to you giving you advice? Or like, hey, I really like this guy. Can you please take a... Chance on them?
3: Well, both. I mean, you, you hear people. I mean, Alabama was at the CRS, the Country Radio Seminar, um, back in the '80s when they would have the New Faces show, mm-hmm. where all the new acts would come out. There was a house band that was used. You didn't bring your band. Okay. So they came out, and of course, they were the band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. And uh, they just—they were on MDJ, a small independent label, and had my homes in Alabama. And and you just—you knew instantly there. Yeah. yeah, that was it. They they but we didn't know how big.
0: Yeah, because I mean, Alabama was also different. I mean, they were different yeah. when they came out because they were considered very pop. And and I know now we look back and we go, there's no way Alabama is as country as country gets. But back then they were very pop, and uh, I guess that was kind of around that urban cowboy era yeah. as well
3: it was a little later than ever cowboy but the fact is that you know the fiddle on the band you know they yeah. were still country except for what we had at that time they were a little bit more pop leaning in terms of the way they produced their records but randy owens sings and you, you
0: yeah. Know, yeah 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 but i always always think about like you know for somebody to see them and hear them for the first time and say you know what, this is the future yeah i mean that's kind of a, a leap of faith
3: well, we had done a, um, a club tour. It was the first of its kind. We went out and took the band to the bottom line in New York, and we did the Roxy in L.A. and the Fox in Atlanta. We just went to pop clubs, rock clubs around the country and brought radio people in because we wanted both formats to see them. The interesting thing, going back to your point, was that when we had them there, the pop guys were going, they're really country. Then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you went, yeah. Okay, I yeah, guess yeah. I got to prove this to you. So, yeah. and then we did over the course of time.
2: How is yeah. your? Uh, what's your impression uh, or thoughts on the the music st- um, styles of country radio today, or what it's been over the last uh, say ten <clears throat> years of how it's progressed and ebbed and flowed?
3: Well, uh, you know, the generations change. I mean, in terms of the listeners, so you you follow those tastes. I think that. Um, there are a lot of outstanding artists. Obviously, you have the Luke Combs of the world, and you know at the same time, you have Morgan Wallen. It's interesting. They're kind of country. Um, but I, I do think there's a, a little bit of a lacking in terms of um, a missing intros, for instance. I, I, I look back in the 90s and the 80s, and I heard you start a single, and immediately I knew what it was. Today, I find that there's a little bit more... Um, flow from one single to another and I'm trying to figure out who would it's interesting. Is. Like
0: yeah, because back in the day we had those very distinctive guitar licks and yep. things like that. And there yeah, you're right. There's a lot more of the snap tracks, there's a lot more of just the And that's exactly it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Never really thought about that. Uh, Doesn't mean
3: it's bad. It's just different. Yeah. Well, the mm-hmm. eras, no matter what yeah. it is,
0: whether it's pop music or country music or R and B or whatever it is, uh, there are always whatever whatever pops, whatever is the thing that is really hot for that moment. You find that everybody else will emulate that and copy it, mm-hmm. and and so you have a lot of uh, music in the same era that will always
2: sound alike, no matter what the genre is. Yeah. Um. So when you when you're running. A label like you went, kind of give us the the kind of the the backstory. You get to RCA uh, and you're running that, and then it kind of. Well, no, you get to RCA in four. in the
4: seventy four. Like,
2: yeah, and you were not running it, obviously.
3: No. That,
1: how did you get from there to being becoming the president of RCA?
3: Um, the good old-fashioned way you do every job known to man, uh, yeah, and you uh, just spend time doing it, and people say, hey, you know, you're pretty good at what you do. Let me give you some more stuff to do. Well, yeah. I,
0: I think this is also a good time to kind of run through Joe's background because a, a lot of our podcast listeners don't know much more than they've just heard everybody thank him
3: on <laughs> award shows. <laughs> <laughs> it's a name
1: you've heard, but maybe you don't know why. So, okay, so you was, was Chet... The, the head guy when you got to Nashville?
3: Chet was still the head of the operation, and Jerry was like the GM. Mm-hmm. And uh, I moved down in 1974. Uh, it was actually a funny story because I was doing really well in New York, and I was uh, in marketing and handling Lou Reed and David Bowie, and everybody gets excited about it, but they were just new acts, and that's why I got them. Uh-uh. Otherwise, if they were stars, I was not getting them at that point because okay. I was just starting out. And I uh, came down here, and, well, first I had – Talked to the president of the company in New York, and he said, hey, we've got a great career opportunity for you. I said, really? What is that, man? He goes, Nashville. (laughs) And I went, what? (laughs) 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 Womp, (laughs) womp, (laughs) womp. How is that a career opportunity? (laughs) So they said, um, well, it'd really be great if you go down there and meet with Jerry Bradley. I think that you two guys would hit it off. Didn't happen. (laughs) It was the north and the south. Really? Oh, God, no. It was horrible. And... um, and Jerry, Jerry's had that attitude, you know, like, hey, I'm running this company over yeah. here. Who the hell are you? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But it was a, a marriage that did work out because I got back on the plane, went home, and I said, you know, I came into the office, and I said, so what, what happened? I, he, he, he didn't like me. He said, he loved you. <laughs> so you're going down. So I immediately went back to the office, my office, and I called down. And at that point, we used to have uh, what were lacquers. That's how you heard music initially in the company, was through a test pressing that you would get. And okay. so the country acts, just like the pop acts, sent them to New York. And I started listening to the country lacquers. And it was Porter and Chet and Floyd Kramer. And I'm going, hmm. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in New York. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm a rock and roller. This is you really... know. Yeah. I mean, my idea of country is what's on pop radio. So if it's Johnny Cash and Ring and Fire or, you know, Skeeter, David, uh, okay, I'm in. I know Eddie Arnold, Well, you were just
0: talking about you were were dealing with David Bowie and those guys, and you're going from David Bowie to hee-haw, basically.
3: It's a culture shock. So anyhow, I came down here, and I spent the first couple years just kind of watching and learning, and I was just helping out with the operation. And then one day I went into Jerry and said, you know, these records, the way I'm looking at this stuff, because I had been in promotion in New York, I said, I think we can do better. (laughs) And he said— well, you son of a bitch. He said, if you think you can do better, go do it. Uh-huh. I love it. So all of a sudden I'm starting to do promotion. And then the next thing was marketing. And then Jerry left and I was basically the GM at that point. And uh, they put me in charge of the company in 1982. So how
2: do you, what do you change about the marketing for country music? What, what were the changes you made?
3: Well, you know, today everybody takes it for granted, but we were the label that did the first promo tours where you would take an artist yeah. to, to radio stations or at the point we did, for instance, the Judds, we took them into studios and had radio people come in and, you know, set up just like you have here, and they hadn't done that before. You know, a long time ago you had the Loretta Lynn tour that she did when she was driving around would do, but most people only showed up when they were at a show, and we did an intentional visit to radio stations before... The record came out, getting everybody on board. Yeah, and that went from that to what became the bus tours. We would actually take the artists out on buses and go from station to station around the country and kind of build our coalition. And um, you know,
1: everybody still does that to this day. That's still the model
3: for launching a new artist. So that, that was some of the stuff that we were doing. You know, there was a lot of things too. I mean, people were releasing records. And uh, they were putting a single out or two. And what we found out was the more research that we did, that the time to release the album was when you had the record in the top 10, where everybody was really spinning it.
0: Okay, so I've always wondered that, why they do that. Uh, Please help me with that.
3: Well, I mean, when we did that, there were records in stores. Right. uh, And CDs. And what happens is you get you get the maximum amount of airplay for the longest period of time because you're in hot rotation, basically power rotation. Right. So you're hearing this record, and then what we would do is take the artists around to those stations on launch in major markets and in syndication and just kind of go, okay, let's announce this new album is coming out, and that would support all the retailers. So people knew to go to the stores because here's your launch date. Prior to that, nobody was really doing it. And the other thing, too, that was different for us Uh, When Alabama launched, Alabama was successful in the southwest and the southeast. There was no east coast, and there was no really west coast. And so chains like Tower Records, they really didn't carry a whole lot. I mean, Lou Harris they would carry, Mm -hmm. Johnny Cash, but most mainstream country it was like, you know, no, we don't touch that stuff. And the same was true in, in New York. There was Sam Goodies and places like that. So we went up. Uh, actually, Marlboro was doing a show around the country and in, in Madison Square Garden and the Forum. Now, Alabama was on the show and brought the accounts out. And little by little, we built that coalition of getting music distributed in the East Coast and West Coast, which wasn't, prior to that, wasn't happening.
1: Yeah. The, part of the music industry that's almost completely gone now is, is you used to have to convince retailers to stock your records. So and I remember when I first moved to Nashville almost 20 years ago, there were still there was a big convention. I can't remember the name of the company. Norm, uh, but the, they would still come in and they would they would play shows where it was almost like country radio seminar. Absolutely. You had to you had to convince radio to play the records. And then you had to wine and dine the folks at the stores to carry St- your records. They only it. have yeah. so much space. So you know, man, no, I don't want the new John Michael Montgomery album if yeah. it's the early 90s because I've never heard of that guy. You had to kind to of convince yeah, basically them that sell it were the, okay, to them wow. as well so that they would put it in their records and people would have a chance to buy it.
3: And the big change for us from a retail standpoint was the birth of Target and the birth of Best Buy and the birth of Walmart because those guys realized that there was an audience as they went around to all these little urban markets, suburban markets, rural markets. Mm-hmm. There was an audience they weren't serving. You know, hip hop wasn't a, a, born at that point, not really. And so they were looking, well, you know, pop records are nice, rock records are nice, but we're missing this element. And once we started doing business in the country genre, you know, the touring of of our acts is nonstop. So they would get that support. We would do in-stores with them. You know, you'd take Dolly out and do an in-store, and there'd be a mob, you know, same with Kenny or Alabama. And that was part of, just like, to your point, Patrick, as we did with radio, we would do the same thing with the accounts. And then the next thing that happened was we figured out that, You know, national TV was important. And again, you have to look back until we went to New York in 2005 with the CMA Awards. Most of the national media put an act on, if you remember, the last thing they do is, you know, uh, David Letterman would come out or Johnny Carson would come out and go, and I've got Patrick and we'll be back. We'll see you tomorrow night. And Patrick would play out whatever Uh his song was.
2: Yes, yes.
3: No couch time. Right. And Dolly was the one that broke through. She broke through with Johnny Carson and because uh, uh, <laughs> Dolly went on the air and um, she came out in full Dolly regalia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so she came out and, Do- you know, Johnny's over there and he's thinking he's a smartass and she just looks over at him she says, you know, I know what you're thinking. You know, Johnny's got his pencil that he always used to drum with and he goes, what? You want to know. She, and he's she's looking at, looking down, and he's looking down. And he says, you know what they call perspiration on them? No, Mountain Dew. <laughs> all of a sudden, Doc Severson hits it. From that point forward, she had couch time all mm-hmm. the time. But it was her manager, Sandy Gowan, out the late who handled Barbara Streisand and Michael Jackson and Mac Davis, got her that opportunity. And then... Little by little, as it always happens with our format, people get a little more comfortable. You know, they don't think you got you know a pointy hat on or something that's you right. know going to prevent mm-hmm. you from getting in other places. And that that was a big change for all of us.
1: You know, uh, Ken Burns, uh, in the biography he uses for you uh, for your part in the country music documentary, he called you the man who taught Nashville how to sell records. But the reason I think that's significant is because we think country music— I know country music from the 50s and 60s and 70s, but you know, the first million-selling album was The Outlaws. That's right. And that was in the late 70s. Like yeah, country music didn't— So before 1978, no country album. All those songs we know, none of that stuff sold a million copies.
3: Well, no, and the certifications were also different back then, and the prices were different too. I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you were selling records for $5. I mean, when I moved here up until probably 80 or 81— um, the retailers and our own companies would not price country records at the same price the pop records were because they thought
0: it was the, lesser.
3: We, yeah, I mean, you know, wow. you, you got all poor people what? and they got no shoes and you know they've got no money. And I mean, yeah. you know, okay, that, there was a period of time where that was a really we were a really rural format. Mm-hmm. But when we started selling, you know a million records on Alabama, I went back to our distribution company and said, raise the price. And from that point forward, then everybody starts going out with the right artists. Everybody started raising the price. And then we got parity because yeah. that also comes back to you because you have less money to spend on marketing if you're so a lower crazy. price. it's
4: mm-hmm. yeah. oh, yeah. like
3: insane. Yeah. Well,
1: you know, by the time we all we all met in the very late 90s. This had already okay. happened. Oh, this yeah. Is, yeah, this was like old hat, you know, yeah. like it was already. But
3: It was a given.
2: Yeah, it's just crazy. It's almost like you... Know what you're doing, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but really to have that vision and foresight.
3: Yeah, well, there's also a lot of trial and error. I mean, there was a lot <laughs> yeah. of crap that we put out that didn't work. I was going to yeah. say, it's a lot of making it Let's up to Let's not make it go. all 100% of your... I was about
1: to say, they don't put that on your Hall of Fame plaque. That's, that's the, the shotgun air.
0: effect, though. You throw out a whole bunch of ideas and a few of them are going to hit.
2: Yeah. I think the biggest thing I took away from what you said is it's about relationships. Mm-hmm. It's getting artists, getting the radio and artists together. It's getting vendors and labels together. Um, and it's, it runs, and no matter what you're doing, uh, you're selling records, you're selling widgets or you're running for office. It's all about relationships. And once you do that, people want, people want to help the people that they know. Absolutely. And And that's exactly what you're talking about. And I think
3: it's, it's interesting too. There's a a guy that was on the CMA board named Charlie Anderson who ran Anderson distribution, which handled all the Walmart accounts. And he came on the board and, um, back up until, Oh, probably late 90s, our CMA Awards was always in October. And we were at dinner one night and into a bottle of wine. And he said to me, why do you do it in October? I said, just, October is country music month. There used to be a part of the merchandising campaign to spread country music was there was a month and all the retailers would go, okay, we'll put country music in and then take it back out. <laughs> and he said, you know, if, you, we, if we did it closer to the holidays, like during November, We could buy a lot more and put it in there. So I went back to the board and the TV committee and said, this is genius. Uh (laughs) I mean, this is really a good idea. And, and of course, all the other label guys went, hell yeah, Yeah. we got to do this. And sure enough, you'd have the CMA Awards probably the second week of November. You'd go on, perform, big spike, come down a little bit the week in between Thanksgiving, Hop up again, come down a little bit, go into Christmas, you know, and then we'd figure out TV shows to get in there, launch a new video, single, whatever it was. And you really saw our format take off because nobody else had that slot for the holidays except the CMA Awards. So it really propelled the format forward. (laughs) It's
0: funny, man. That's really funny that nobody else and I, I'm I'm going to notice now whenever something is announced I'm going to be like what is this right in front of what are they staging this for
3: Absolutely it, and and we because all Because
0: now the, all that thought is put into everything That's correct because you taught them how to think it
3: Yeah and people you know they take advantage of those performances and you know most of the time it helps
1: That's crazy Okay so you were at RCA from 82 you know, all through the 80s, mm-hmm. then 1989. We all know in country music, you know, lore, the class of 89 changed everything. And But people talk about Garth, obviously, because Garth was a very big deal. But the number one most played song and the number two most played song on the air, both in 1989, were by Clint Black. Like, Clint Black may have been the, the first real 1989 star to break through and change the mold, did you see something that you know that that was going to be this game changing sound or did it just another guy that was pretty good and we,
4: we made a record?
3: I mean, he is a great singer and one hell of a writer. And that initial album, I mean, killing time is a, one of those iconic records. Mm -hmm. And, um, the interesting thing was I was having lunch with Jimmy Bowen, who was the guy running Capitol had Garth and, uh, Jimmy said to me, he says, yeah, I got this guy that's on the label. And he says, you know, he's from Oklahoma and he's got a hat and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I said, when are you putting out the record? He said, oh, I'm going to probably put it out this summer. Well, we were going to put Clint out this summer, that summer, too. So I went back to the office, called a meeting and said, we're going in 30 days. Let's get our shit together and go. Yeah. And so when we had the ACM Awards, Clint had all those nominations and well-deserved because the singles were spectacular yeah, better man killing time yeah. they were just... no news no, yeah i mean it just it was off the charts and you know the touring was starting for him and then of course garth came out the right after that and you know you had you know the alan jacksons of the world and i think travis trick was in that class mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, i mean these are great singers with some incredible records and that really started to propel you know the move forward with those acts and and the new class it was a breakthrough for all of us who was all who always was in that class?
1: Alan Jackson, Garth Brooks, Clint Black, Travis Tritt, and there's always I feel like there's always somebody yeah. I'm forgetting, but I think there's mainly those four guys. And really, you know, there was a shift. I mean, you think of everybody who came after that, but there were very few guys that were before that that held on. I mean, yeah. the acts that made it into the 90s from before that are like Alabama, Randy Travis, George Strait, and you know most of the most of the country music. This you go pull up the chart in 1988. Go to like Wikipedia and look at the number one songs in 1988, and you'll go, oh yeah, they weren't playing any of these guys yeah. in 1990. And those
3: were all country. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was nothing pop about that. Yeah. So
0: 1988's biggest star was Merle Haggard.
3: Hmm. Oh. Wow. And
0: by 1990, nobody was playing oh, him. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right. You had. Uh, it was the shift. Ronnie mm-hmm. Millsap, Dan Seals. Uh, oh, Roseanne Cash, wow. okay, yeah. Uh, yeah Randy yeah. Travis actually was like still I said, around. Randy Travis, He's George right. Strait in Alabama. Reba, George Strait, and that's it. Everybody else was, was like Eba, Eddie Rabbit yeah, and was. KT Oslin and Eddie Raven, and yeah.
3: wow, yeah, huge shit. Yeah, KT came in '88, um, and then Clinton was '89, and then I moved to New York in '90.
1: So, sidetrack. You went to New York and ran
3: all the all, all the all labels, of the, the of pop, the R&B, jazz.
2: Wow! <laughs> wow! Nice eye roll. there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's the jazz uh, president? Uh, yeah, what's, I'm, I'm, what's...
3: there was uh, our label was called Novas, and uh, and they they had more acts. <laughs> they must have had fifteen or twenty acts on the roster. And, and not, you know, jazz is a, a specialty area. And it you know, if you get to a hundred thousand, you you know, you're having a party. And yeah. uh, it, it, when I got in there, there were almost ninety acts that we had, and I dropped sixty of them. Wow. Oh
1: man, they loved you, didn't they? Well, but the, the reality is <laughs> yeah. nobody
3: ever heard from them. Right. Again, yeah. those acts that we dropped, five of them got signed by other labels. Nobody heard from them either. You know, it was just, it's a game of signing to a large degree because you sign these buzz bands and everything else, and uh, then you start trying to build a roster from there. But the jazz was not my forte. What is the
0: uh, what is the ratio of, like, uh, because I, I've heard, like, Patrick has brought it up sometimes, like, it takes several artists – like several different bands, whatever it is. Uh, what is it to, how many do you sign to find the one that actually breaks through?
3: I'll tell you the story. So Rick Pitino was our our guest speaker when I was running the the labels in New York. And it was probably 92 when we had our annual convention. And so I got up there and, you know, I'm playing all the new music from the R&B department and from the pop department, the rock department, I don't know, played 25 records or whatever, artists, and, I, you know, I was up there telling the staff, you know, if we can get four or five of these through, we're going to have an unbelievable year. I get down, I'm talking to Rick Pitino, and, you know, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. And he says, you know, he said, I just want to tell you one thing. He said, if I went with those stats, I wouldn't have a job. Yeah.
1: In in sports, if you're, other than baseball, baseball, you can, you know, you can hit get a hit a third of the time and be very successful, but you got to have more than 30% win ratio.
3: So, yeah, I mean, our, our business is, you know, maybe you're hitting 10%. Maybe you're hitting 15%. Why
0: is that? I, I mean, does anyone know? Is there any kind of stu- – has anybody ever studied and said, why does somebody make it through and all these others don't? Because I hear so many – I mean, over the course of the two-plus decades we've been doing our show, we've had some amazing singers come through here
3: Yeah, that we never it, heard from but again. But if it was just singing <laughs> – Mm-hmm. That would be easy, but it's not. We were talking about it the other day where I just came back from the CMA board meeting in Chicago, and there were several of us there from agency and management and just talking about artists that were successful for a moment. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, problems with marriage, problems with alcohol, problems with I just don't want to work this hard, problems with Mm -hmm. I'm going to write everything as opposed to finding the best songs. Just it's it's all those things. There are a lot of little things in there that add up to be big things because there are lots of great singers that come in this town. And sometimes not the best singers making it to the top and staying because yeah. they're good singers, but they're stylists. But they they find those songs that we all go, oh, that's yeah. great. Because you need a bunch of great because otherwise you just, you know, you become forgettable. It's fascinating,
0: but because uh, the whole star thing, how you become a star, is it's like a crapshoot.
2: Yeah. Has it changed now with, like, TikTok and uh, all the viral video stuff?
3: Yeah, I mean, the, I think the barrier to entry is lower than it was before, because um, when I was running the labels, we had 24 acts, maybe 25 acts, and we were running probably 35% market share today, the labels are running on average somewhere between 34 and 36 acts and they don't have that kind of market share because you're getting acts that truly aren't, you think about who's in the hall of fame in terms of those artists, they worked the road, they built those songs, they built shows. You had somebody comes on, nothing against tic tac or TikTok or any of the other <laughs> days. Yeah. That's
1: closer. Yeah. <laughs> Digital
3: platforms. But the reality is, You're not fully formed as an artist. Right. Mm -mm. And you also get people who are hot right now. Yeah.
0: And they might not be for, you know, much longer than that moment.
3: Well, you know, Uh, it's interesting you
2: say that because just a couple weeks ago, I met a woman who had been on one of the shows,
0: one of the competition shows. She didn't win or anything like that. But when she heard, oh, you live in Nashville, and she, let me give you my card. Let me, I said, well, what are you doing? Do you have a Facebook page? Do you have a TikTok? And the problem is she'd been on this one show and she thought that was going to be it. And you, ca- I can't say to a person the way you could, right? That, honey, put some work into this. Yeah, you gotta she do. just thought someone was going to show up and be like, "Well, you were in the top fifty of something, so here's a record deal." No.
3: Well, I think it also changes. People come in and say, "Oh, I've got two million streams." Well, Patrick's got seven. You've mm-hmm. got ten. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, the numbers keep changing. And again. You know, I always used to say when we went through this, that that shows that I like you. Doesn't mean I love you. Right. I mean love you is I'm buying tickets. Right. I'm showing up for your merch. And mm-hmm. that takes time you and you've got to, to have get to out to there.
1: Think about, really whittle it down who what album you were gonna buy. Yeah. Like I saved my yeah. money and once a month I bought a record and that was my I had to really like decide who I wanted. But and and once I bought it, that was it. I can only buy that record one time, so you're only going to get one number out of me. Okay, now, yeah, one person, like you said, one person can stream a song 200 times.
3: Yeah, and there's a difference, too. Just one person. But streaming today, you can just click a playlist and just, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, as opposed to engaging when you bought a record, you knew the cuts on the album. Today, you may know some of the music, and then you may not know the rest of it.
0: I also felt like I owned... That like I was invested in that band, and there's a lot of people that I stream that I don't care.
3: That's why I say love versus like. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't mean that you cannot have a career, but to last the names that we're talking about, you have to be able to do that at a different level. You just, I mean, but again, it doesn't have to be. Kenny just used to always bust my chops about. You know how many number twos I got? Yeah, and I know how many number ones you got, too, you know. And they can't all be one depending on what you're competing against. Eric Church, Miranda Lambert, they don't all have straight number ones. There are artists that have one number one after another, but Eric Church and Miranda Lambert will pull more tickets, have a longer longevity, just because they have those kind of songs. And, you know, you guys are in this business you know how the charts work and there isn't always a, or there's a logic behind how they get there that there's not always a reason for them to be there.
2: Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the, um, is it a tough conversation to have with an artist to discuss uh shelf life for them mm-hmm. of like, Hey, you know, there's going to be a big bang and big boom. And then let's take it as long as we can. And, and then eventually the wave's going to die and, you'll be back in the water and not, you know, unless you do something.
3: Well, even if you do something, um, I mean, I've had a lot of people I've had to drop over the years, you know, just drop them from the roster because there's nothing else to be done. You know, we've changed producers, we've changed writers, you know, but we've gotten to a certain point on the chart where people are not responding. My attitude always was, if I get, get you to top 25 and I can't find any kind of reason for people to pull in, and do that a couple of times, then you know you got to go find someplace else because I'm I'm not clearly doing something right, and our combination's not working, and you know that's just that's just life. I mean, there you know yeah. happens in sports. It happens. It's just it's what goes on, and I think that um, the ones that do listen and go, uh, I get it, I get it you know, let me go to work on this, you know, and they find new co-writers or they bring in some songs or the A&R department comes in or you change the producer and they build a show. I mean, all those things go into it, but it is a job. It is not just a hobby. If it's a hobby, you're not going to succeed because the people in this format that are competing, they're serious, you know, and you've got to go after it that way. And I, I think that some people have outworked other people and had better shots at success just because they do they do the work. Yeah,
1: yeah. It comes back to the the Garth Brooks thing. I mean, you clearly Garth Brooks has magic. Yeah. There's something about him that is special. But also, uh, he worked
2: it.
3: Like he, you know, he worked like it you can see he's it. The smart.
1: guys who do that, like Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Taylor Swift yeah. did that kind of thing. You know, um, you mentioned we talked a lot about Alabama. I know they got went out and hammered. But did you have a lot of guys, or at least some? Uh, People who just, the record deal was the goal, and then it kind of falls off?
3: Yeah, that's the conversation we had the other day. They just, they get success, and they get comfortable in it. They don't want to do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes, you know, you have artists that get in and get the success, and they go, this is not what I thought it was. Mm. This is way too much for me. It's too much in my life. I have no personal space, because it is. You have people in your life. I mean, that our job is to get you the exposure. Sometimes we don't know when to turn it off, and there can be overexposure, and you can wear people out. I mean, Sean Mendes said, "Hey, I got to take a break. You know, I I, I got to get off the road. I can't do this." I, that happens after you've been running at it hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 a difficult life, and I mean, people see all the good stuff, and yeah, that's there, but they forget going through. You know, you're sick. You're gonna play. People are out there. I don't care how you feel. You're gonna do your best to get out there, and it's one Go day or another.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: But uh, yeah. uh, how
2: uh, do you have a list of how many people hate you? Like because <laughs> like, you have to have. Like, you, you must be like. A Is there some self-awareness? List. Like, well, I yeah. know that guy. That's oh like, yeah. 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 You see him at a party, and you're like, oh <laughs>
3: god. I used to get that stuff in the mail too from people. You know, hey.
2: Uh, yeah, because you got to, you got to have a thick skin because you're. You're the boss. You're yeah. the one. It's, it's, firing
0: somebody is hard well, enough, but firing somebody whose job is basically based upon ego must well, be ridiculous.
3: Well, I think the thing is that there's a difference when you they feel you've done what you said you were going to do and it didn't work as opposed to just going, eh. Mm-hmm. No big, let's move on. And, and I, you know, that's why our roster was really tight. We didn't sign somebody just for the hell of it. You know, it really was. We, we have a plan here between all of us, the manager, ourselves, the producer, and, you kind of, and the artist, obviously, and, and you try to execute it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Because, again, there, I think the, the number I saw the other day, there are 70,000 tracks added to Spotify every day.
1: 70,000 oh songs just, just in general?
3: Yeah. yeah. Every day? Every day. And that's just Spotify. It leaves out. How Apple do you music. break through
1: that? It's the same thing as YouTube. There's like mm-hmm. They say there are a million videos that posted on YouTube it. every day. Like, how do you? you
3: know, does it doesn't include that. doesn't yeah. include podcasts. It doesn't include Netflix. I mean, oh the amount of media that we're being pushed with. And, in fact, the other day I read an article that talked about the algorithm, which we all know is how songs are picked. And sometimes that's how you wind up with your – oh, you're going to like this on Netflix. It's the algorithm that looks at your likes and says. The thing it said was, okay, this tells me what I like, but it doesn't know what would be unexpected that I would like because it doesn't show up. And that's where you get that magic where somebody shows up the other day like Morgan Wallen. I mean, he's nowhere, anywhere, and then boom. Yeah, how how does that happen? How did that happen? Morgan was...
2: I, more, there was he was around mm-hmm. and he played and and it was fine but it was like kind of like eh. and then all of a sudden it it really seemed like and overnight it was, and it was before the controversy so oh, yeah. something oh, yeah. happened
0: oh, was, something, was, something the songs. There, was, there was a shift the songs. it was the, the songs. songs are that good yeah
3: and then mm. he he's you know he was part of the generation that came up and he was able to get on uh, social media and. You know his team helped him get there, and he, you know, you'd you'd get more content from him. People felt he was accessible, and I mean, the records it was those are album that album is a great album. I mean, it is it's chock full of great songs. So, but uh, that consistency. I mean, the thing that we all understand today that is different than before in the digital space. You have to keep feeding the beast. You can't just stop. People want more, more. Give me more. What's the alternative version? Is there a mix that's different? Is there a new track that you're doing? Can Patrick and I get together and play? You keep it going. And that's part of what the burnout is too. Because in order to keep moving forward, you keep putting that stuff out. Mm -hmm. And if you, my personal opinion is that it's not a bottomless pit in terms of creativity for all these acts. They do need a break. They need to go away sometimes and go whoop. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to feel that. I mean, Kenny now on the road, you know, he is so excited about being out there. But there was a period prior to COVID where it was like, man, I've been doing this for like 30 years, you know, same Mm -hmm. old, not about the audience, but the the grind of Mm -hmm. going through everything.
0: So let's I want to go back to the like the Morgan controversy and we're not going to address that. What I what I would like to bring up is, you know, with Kenny. Kenny and Tim, they stole the cop horse, remember? And there was all this <laughs> oh, drama. Yeah. And then you got the Morgan thing. When something crazy like that happens and an artist uh, goes through an event that looks like it can be, you know, career ending, you know, how how do you turn that around and say, you know, what we've got way too much momentum. We've got to find a way to push through whatever... They've done that was dumb.
3: Well, that, that particular incident gave us the opportunity to get on tonight show with Kenny. That was his first major TV appearance. So yeah,
0: because he blew up after that, after that it was yeah. over.
3: But again, we had you know like over a good How forever way. feels? Um, there were songs coming that supported that, and he was growing in terms of tickets, and that just kind of pushed it. You know, I remember when I moved back to to Nashville, and and um, Martina came out with Independence Day and everything was out there with O.J., and people took that song on Independence Day and put those two items together, even though it had nothing to do with it, Mm -hmm. I mean, in in, in the way it was written. Right. But it propelled that song to another level. So it's, it's strange coincidences come up, and you take advantage of the opportunity. Sometimes you want to hide from it, too. You just don't want to be out there. You know, I mean, Morgan went through that where it was just like, you've got a target on your back and we're going to keep on firing from so many places.
2: Yeah. What's the, um, uh, what's the craziest time you've been in bed and you get woke up by a phone call and someone says, okay, Joe, I have to tell you something. It can't wait till tomorrow. <laughs> I've got to tell you now.
3: It, it was funny. Cause this is probably, well, it was, it was 2001. And I, Normally, don't keep my cell phone on by my bed when I go to sleep, and that night I did. And Alan Jackson's manager, Nancy Russell, called, and she had had a conversation with the Grammys about the potential to get Alan Jackson on there. And she just went off about, "We got to get this goddamn Don. You know I mean, just on out And I'm lying in bed, and I'm like, "What? What are we talking about? <laughs> what? Wh- who did you talk to? You know, trying to get the whole thing together." And so then I followed up the next day with the guys that are, Ken Earl looking a lot. And so I'm talking to him, and he goes, well, if you can cut that song down from five minutes down to three, uh, where were you when the world stopped turning, you know, we'll get you on the show. And I said to him, Ken, wow, where the shit do you think I'm going to – first of all, you think I'm going to talk to Alan Jackson about that? That's the first part. Right? Second mm-hmm. part – if Alan was completely off his rocker and decided to consider it, what part of the song would you cut? Right.
1: Yeah, nothing.
3: No answer. He did the performance. It was interesting because that's in February, post-award the show in November, when we came out and did a half a million records that first week. Number one for six weeks. We thought the world knew it. He went on that show. Record took off again because most people that were outside of the country format didn't know. never mm-hmm. heard it did yeah. not really did not hear it so it had two lives so as yeah, big oh, yeah. as
1: that song was it actually hit it wild. was
3: it was that was one of those moments on the award show that changed the dynamic about an artist. Can career. you
1: imagine if people I said this uh, when Chris Stapleton and Justin Timberlake yeah. happened because they sold 150,000, I think downloads in 25 hours before the, it was the number and at 25 hours from the moment they were off stage until the chart closed at, the, yeah. at midnight Thursday and they they were number one. It was the number one song and the number one record. In the country, that was when people were still downloading. Go and pay ten dollars and download well, the record. I went to see
3: him the other night in Huntsville, Chris Stapleton. During the show, he goes and here's my first single. It got all the way to number forty six. Yeah. You
1: know? <laughs> but I think
3: right. If think about what if
1: Alan Jackson had done that song. If back then people could have just gone to this computer in their hand and downloaded that record, how many records would you singles would you have sold? you that got on
3: a lot more playlists. You yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it it, it is that what was still, it was. Yeah. That was the platforms that, that you had still to deal big. with. Oh God, yes.
1: Was there who's. I mean, if you're comfortable saying that, who's somebody that you thought was going to be or you're shocked wasn't a bigger star. Is mm. there anybody that you're just were sure was going to break through and it just didn't work?
3: It's strange, but I thought the Warren brothers. I yeah. did too. I mean, I, I thought those guys had, they, they were hysterical. Mm-hmm. They were a musical and they were great. In terms of what they were able to put together. We just never got the songs right. Mm-hmm. But the funny became, thing is is they've
0: written some of the best songs. And
3: that's exactly what changed for them. They started writing with other people and it just changed the dynamic. And now I don't know, a hundred songs that have been on radio over the years are written by those guys. And it's I mean, I signed those guys three times. I dropped them, sign really? signed them again, <laughs> dropped them. Sign him again. Aww. You know, it was one of those things where you kept going, God, we can get it right this time, can't we? And it, you know, part of it what that time, and they will tell you this, they were drinking. Mm-hmm. And that didn't help the issue. They both have gotten sober. Yeah, but they exchanged. were fun back then. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember
0: those days. You know, I, I think the funny thing them. about that is
3: they thought they had to do that to be funny. They actually <laughs> are funnier now. Joe, I mean, I was, oh, my
2: God. Joe, I was with uh, Brett and his wife and my wife. And we went to uh, have dinner at one of these Japanese steakhouse kind of places in Cool Springs. And and we uh, we'd finished dinner. And uh, uh, we walk outside, we're waiting on the girls. They went to the bathroom. We're still waiting on the, them. And we're just standing out on the, on the uh, sidewalk outside the restaurant. You know, have those, those koi ponds uh-huh. outside and that kind of thing. Well, Brett goes, Man, you know, these things will eat anything. I said, Yeah, I've heard that. So he goes, <laughs> Oh my God. Gets a lug, spits it in the water, and, and these fish it. come up. And we're, I'm going, Oh my gosh. And about that time, you hear someone go, <clears throat> and we look, and we had did we didn't see the outdoor seating area. He had just done that in front of like five tables, and they were all staring at him, going, "Really?" I texted him the other day. He goes, "Dude, that's still one of the funniest things I think I've ever done." in my life. Uh, I'll
1: go out on a limb and say one that you had a, a part in in the, a later iteration, uh, and I don't mean to diminish this guy's career because he had a he's he's had a good career, but. I think we all thought Pat green was going to be like in 2000, when we first met him, we all thought he was going to be a superstar. I thought it was going to be the biggest thing ever. Uh,
3: When we toured with Kenny, uh, he knocked out of the park. I mean, Kenny would often say, this is who you want as an opener. He gets them out of Mm -hmm. their seats and, I mean, he is an incredible performer. He still is an incredible performer. It's not that
1: he wasn't a hard worker. No, it just... but it,
3: we just never found the songs. When he was in Texas, those songs resonated. Mm-hmm. And when we took him away from it's like, you know, Kryptonite. and the other. You know, you try to make somebody who isn't really country into a country act, and he wasn't. I mean, he was just a great entertainer and works really well there and could continue to do it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. Morgan Hayes, you know— uh, Chris's wife, when Renee Bell, who was an A&R, brought her to me, I thought, this is exactly what this format needs. And, you know, we put several singles out, brought them to radio conventions, and I thought, what the heck am I missing here? And I still, as a, she's a hell of a singer, hell of a writer. Mm-hmm. There were other people that were out there that they just didn't want to make room. I mean, at the end of the day, there is a finite amount. There's not an infinite <clears throat> amount of spaces right. to fill. What's, uh, what does
2: country music need to do moving forward, do you think?
3: I honestly think that um, the reality is that we're, we're kind of pushing, um, how to say this, I feel like there's we're getting comfortable with sound as opposed to being a little bit more original and taking chances everywhere. And, you know, you kind of try to fit the box. And that is reinforced by the algorithms and what people think. The difference was when we were a label in the, even in the digital world, through CDs and downloads, when you had success, you saw things really spike. You saw sales increase and you felt that. Today, that's less. So because I think people, to our point earlier, are just listening laid back, not actively. And, um, again, if you just listen, it, I, I went up to my grandson's graduation in the day and my daughter and her friend were in the front seat and they had the radio on and I'm just kind of listening and I'm going, this just runs together. Yep. It just runs together. What, what makes it different? Not that anybody is bad, but, you know, if you're just going this way and there are no peaks and valleys musically, I think that's an issue. And that's part of the reason why I think you look at the 80s and 90s and people are so nuts about catalog because of that differentiation. There are a lot of great acts in the format, but again, we're putting out more than we ever have before. So as a listener, sometimes I think there's just too much coming at me and I can't pick it apart. I can't figure out who that person is.
2: You know, it's uh, I listened to like uh, old violin you listen to that song. And I remember going, Kali, it's, it's something's wrong with it. Like, there are parts where it doesn't sound right and, like, <clears throat> it's sung yeah. wrong and, like, the music didn't seem right. But I found myself drawn to it over and over and over. Mm-hmm. This stuff, this music, a lot of this stuff that comes out, like, you're right. It's just kind of like feed, like, like you to a cattle. It's just kind of like the uh, same old kind of.
3: Well, I think, you know, it It works. Because of the way the system is set up, you you get that play and you move forward, and everybody goes, "Well, I can do that again and mm-hmm. again and again." But when something stands out, and I think, you know, it's hard when you, when you're using all this data today. Everybody looks at all the information you get from all the DS the digital service providers that you've got out there, the apples mm-hmm. and the Spotify. But the reality is, you know, you, you just pointed out you, you you can hear something once, eh. And yep. then, and then, and then, and then finally, it clicks. Yes. And, you know, the way the system works <clears> today, it doesn't really, if you keep skipping, you don't get to hear anything. Yep. And, and, and again, there's so much coming at you, it's hard to kind of hold on to it. And that's where that class of 89, those voices were all different. Mm. Oh, they yeah. were all unique And they were all, the songs, I I keep coming back to that, what makes our format, what makes our town, you know, is the fact that we've got great songwriters and we've had a tradition of great songs. And when you get this feeling that, you know, it needs to fit the track as opposed to the song being crafted around everything that's around that. And going back to my point about the intros, again, there's a lot of stuff out there that's working really well, but... uh, I was in the job of trying to build a catalog. So, you know, my job was, okay, so Jerry had signed Ronnie Millsap, so who's going to replace Ronnie Millsap? So Kenny Chesney. And then you go through and it's Brooks and Dunn, and you go through and it's Alan Jackson, and you build that up, and that's how your label becomes successful because you've got a ton of these acts. The best catalog in this town is what exists in Sony because it's the combination of RCA and all the Colombian epics. So it's Brawl Haggard, it's Tammy Wynette, it's Charlie Pride, it's Ronnie Millsap, it's Eddie. You can go on and Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings. It just goes on and on and on and on. And that's how those labels become legendary because mm-hmm. they've got the best of. And I had run this uh, meeting and, I, and I, I used the George Jones line about who's going to fill their shoes. And I had all our, I mean, the labels that I ran have half of the artists in the Hall of Fame. And not not from me, but from our catalog.
4: Yep. Mm-hmm.
3: Some from me, but a lot from the catalog. And you go, well, who's going to take their place? Who are we working on that's going to fill their shoes? Because it's a valid question. Otherwise, if we're just delivering, you know, one off, mm-hmm. we're not really building the format. Nope. you know, you're keeping yeah. people. You know, they're they're happy. You know, it's like vanilla ice cream. Everybody likes it, but you know, it's not. Every once in a while, you want something that's going to give you a surprise. And yeah. I think that's. What the label needs, not the label, sorry. <laughs> what the <laughs> format continues yeah. to need is that surprise. You and know, by the where,
0: format, just for those, uh, I think, that are, it's the genre, the yeah, country music genre. Yeah. And I think um,
3: that's what Chris Stapleton did. That That is a moment where I think we can all point and go, because Chris was out there for, forever. that album was out for six months. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I cut a bunch of his songs with various artists. Always, when you got the demo, you just stopped. I remember pulling over on the side of the road and going, so, holy yeah. What the, Uh-huh. you know, who, but at the end of the day, that album had been out for six months. I remember talking to Mike Dungan, who runs the label, and he said, we were dead in the water. No, Nothing, nothing was happening.
1: I yeah. was, and people go, oh, radio only plays what they want you to hear. That's not true because I was in here constantly begging God, people. To yeah. listen to like you, don't you get it? Go listen to this. Patrick it's the best had, thing you've ever heard Patrick
0: had Chris
1: do his voicemail oh, message. Just, he was I such would, a fan. No, you had Chris do. I didn't do that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we did that to make Leave fun a of message me. for Patrick. Oh, it's amazing.
3: But uh That's a great goddamn idea. <laughs> yeah, it, is. it was really great.
2: But I
1: I I would you I, I do marketing. Ten, yeah, I bought 10 copies of that album and gave them out to my close friends yep. and family. And and my brothers who love country music, my my nephew and my cousins, they were all like this is pretty good and I was like no it's not pretty good it listen to it again yeah. this is the best what is wrong with you and they ju- it just didn't click until
0: the it performance was, it
1: was on stage and it was like oh okay yeah. well I get it now and why would
0: you not have put out because that always <laughs> baffled me after that oh. performance the fact that they did not put out Tennessee, Tennessee whiskey, whiskey
1: as the single they that, had a single plan for the Monday following the awards and I'll tell you that's the biggest mistake. I can think of from a label, from a promotion standpoint, I can't believe that wasn't a single.
3: You got in that, everybody was in setup mode. They had the record out there. They had it primed to go. And it was like, whoops, that's where the pivot comes in. You have to
0: be able to shift. You have to. And you you know,
3: it's interesting you bring that up because we were really frustrated when Martina was having, you know, everything from Independence Day. I mean, everything she was going through, those records were just enormous, but we could not get the female focus of the year. So I got really ticked off one day. And I said, "Okay, we're going to bundle the cassette in the Tennessean because most of the voters lived in Tennessee. They lived in Nashville, but it, it, the people in the business don't listen. Mm-hmm. You guys do, yeah. But most of a lot of people that are there, they listen to their own artist mm-hmm. or their own roster, but they don't. Right. They don't get outside. And we sent that out, and all of a sudden, when the nominations came around." We got a bunch of them that we didn't have before. Wait, people so, didn't realize what those song, what, what the album was. So you packaged her cassette in the Tennessee in paper. the newspaper. Yeah, when you got it, it was an, an additional. Actually, I stole the idea from the UK because they used to do that all the time. They would put a, a a cassette in there. When I was overseas, I went. That's an interesting idea. And then realizing that most of the voters were here in Nashville, it was like, well, this is a no brainer. I mean, you know, That's why not go? Really smart.
2: Uh, those artists are great, but have you heard the Island Boys? Um, no, <laughs> no, no, I, I have okay, okay,
1: before, well, I know we're almost running out of time, and I'm sure... Hey, when do you leave, when do you leave or or
2: I want you to look be, up Island Boys don't go, do that. Go, go, go Island and listen Boys. to their Island music. Boys. They okay. are stars.
1: I have a couple of things I have to ask before you go. One is you're going into the Country Music Hall of Fame. We mentioned that earlier. One of the other artists going in this mm-hmm. year, Keith Whitley, who you signed. Yeah. Tell us... What was like to us, Keith Whitley is like an icon. None of us ever met him. Hmm. None of us were ever active in this when he was, you know, still alive. But and we
0: were most of, most of us in general, I think, were introduced to his songs because they were sung by other, other people. people. And yeah. then you
1: went back. Oh, no. Yeah. I had that cassette. Don't Close Your Eyes. Yeah. I wore oh, it out. Like it didn't album. play anymore. But what was, did you know it as soon as you saw him? I mean, he'd been no. around town for a while.
3: No. I mean, the first album that came out, um, you know, we've we, nothing. We got critical acclaim and nobody was really interested. And then we got the second album and we had Miami, Miami. Um, and little by little, we'd have a hit. And, we'd, and when I say a hit, I mean a relative hit, mm-hmm. not, not something where people went, oh my God. But what it did do is people began to hear his voice. And the breakthrough was don't close your eyes. I'm no stranger to the rain. When he passed away, that album was in, in being uh, completed and Garth Fundus gave me the cassette. And I remember driving down Music Row and just pulling over on the side of the road and just bawling because this was the moment we had been five years into this. And the problem was Keith had a lot of demons to deal with. And most of it had to do with alcohol and the way he was raised, not that he was raised badly, but just the exposure and being on a road at a really young age, you know. And, and just, nobody tells you no. Yeah, yeah, you're with a bunch of grown guys. And yeah, he was I mean, playing bluegrass with like know, uh, all We're going to be drinking. Here's yeah. moonshine. We're going to go out and have a good time tonight, you know, and you're a kid. And I, and I think that um, part of what happened was Lori Morgan, who Keith introduced me to, we had signed and Lori was going out on the promo tour. And uh, I was actually having lunch with Eddie Arnold in in, uh, Maud's courtyard down the road. And uh, one of the the staff came into me and and whispered in my ear and said, you know, Keith died. And I'm looking at Eddie and, you know, I kind of finished up the lunch and go back to the office because we had to find out where Lori was. She was on the road. There were no cell phones back then. And so you could hear a radio station getting the news and going, Keith Whitley passed away and here's Lori in a car. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we found her in Seattle before the news got out there. She cut the promo tour. She came back, but Keith was a, had a great sense of humor and could do imitations that were incredible. He had a smile that lit up the room, and he never. Everybody loved the guy. He just was so affable, and but that alcohol. I mean, I actually uh, suspended him one point because he had fallen off the wagon again. And, uh, you know, he thought, oh, my God, my career is over. And actually, suspension just means I'm not going to put the record out. But he thought it was the end of his career. Mm -hmm. And I found out a lesson at that point because we sent him into rehab. And I found out that from an addiction standpoint, uh, unless the person wants to do it, you can't change the behavior. Right. And so all we did was buy some time for him and for Lori because he fell off the wagon again that night when he died. Is
1: I remember it, her saying, she she told me in another interview that she she would tie like a, a bell around his ankle so she him. would know if he got up in the middle of the night to go, go drink, drink in the middle of the night. Well, how right?
2: much was he drinking? Yeah. Oh, his blood
1: alcohol level when he died was 0. 0.4. That's five times the legal limit. Yeah. It's the equivalent of drinking like a bottle and a half of Jack Daniels in under
3: an hour. He was drinking everything in the house. Yeah. And I mean, it just, I think there was a fear of being alone. I mean, if you stop to think for just one second, if they had been, if he had lived and Lori and Keith had been able to make music together, we would have had George and Tammy for decades. I mean, I don't think there were finer country singers out there at that time. And they just, they both had the story, the pedigree. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they were madly in love and it was just, so fun when we went to the wedding and everything, you know, just that big smile. And it was Keith, you know, Keith, Keith was in some ways, you know, the, the whole Harley attitude from the country. I mean, he was of the people Mm -hmm. and he, he could play anything. I was sitting next to Gene Simmons from Kiss when we, we launched him in RCA at a convention and I leaned over to him because I saw him, he was kind of bobbing his head and everything. I said, what do you think of this? And he said, anything that's great. I like And that was before we really broke. I mean, but you could see it on stage because Keith had really reached that point where he had come into his own in terms of this is who I am, this is how I'm going to play it. And as a singer... We, were, we didn't have that sound. And that's why everybody comes out and does those covers. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a great respect for him. It and,
0: still happens today. We'll have brand new artists come in.
1: Who's on like his second record? He's, yeah. he's on, just had his, or about to have his third number one hit. He did a whole album yeah. of Keith Whitley covers because it's that big of a
2: deal. Two artists of this. Wasn't Tim? Age? Didn't Tim say that it's the whole reason he came to
3: Nashville? Yeah. Oh, Tim, yeah. Garth, I mean, Chris Young, there are a bunch of people that just. They, <laughs> and I mean, for me, it was that happened not too far after I had signed the Juds, And, you know, I had lots of people coming up to me and just going, oh, my God, that's our I love this music. In fact, I got a phone call one day. I was in the office. My assistant said Conway Twitty's on the line. And I had known Conway. We've been out in the road and everything actually out in the road. He had been there, and we were in England when uh, Keithwood and Laurie were over there. And he and he said to me, "He said, son, you did a good thing.' Click." <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to figure out what what like, good thing it was. Like you not you No, get... <laughs> no, he he did. He started. There was the comment about the judge, but that was about it. You know, it wasn't yeah. anything more than that. You know, but it, um, it. You know, and that's that's for me. That is such a moment because you know you you realize. When you've got greats like that or who we're talking about with Keith, it's like that's important for the format. And that and that comes back to that conversation. We need more of that.
2: Yeah. yeah. Do you know, uh, do you remember where you were and you heard about Naomi?
3: Yes. I was at my um, goddaughter's uh, play, and I got a call from uh, her manager, uh, Greg Hill, and um, stepped outside, and he told me, and it was like, because the next day was the Hall of Fame. Oh, I know. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm I've known Ashley since she was 13 years old. Why I was 15, 16 when I signed her? You know, with the braces and everything else, and the high school friends that we used to hang out with. I mean, it. You know, I've known that family since you know 84, 85. So it's you know it is heartbreaking. I mean, obviously Morse, you know the story and you know what's going on there, but it's. She was uh, an entertainer, and she was a songwriter, and she was a personality, and she was a big part of their success. Because why well, was a kid? She was a singer, yeah, unparalleled for sure. Yeah. But mom would make those moments on stage where everybody just kind of leaned in, and and that was it. That was another, you know, wave of mothers and daughters and sisters going to shows that normally didn't show up before. They they brought more people into the format, yeah. You know, so. It was
2: such a uh, the judge to me, or one of the best sounds. I love the way they just. I don't know. I don't know what's the uh, just the the blending of the voices or the,
3: and the guitar playing. The, that, gu- yeah, yeah it, Don that, Potter and Brent Mayer made those record again. We were talking about before when a judge record starts, you know instantly based on those guitars and who it, goes, who it is.
2: And it goes back to what you said earlier. It sounds like everything's kind of the same, mm-hmm. it, and when you have an intro that sounds that guitar it's it like cuts through it's like it's i don't know it's it's like higher pitch almost yeah. it's super trebly and cuts through and it's gorgeous and then they sing, Ugh. and that was kind of the way.
0: especially when you go back to like the storms of life, the early, about to say, early Randy people Travis. Credit Randy same Travis thing.
1: as being the turning point toward neo traditional country. Those intros but the you judge knew was before that. Yeah. No, but was, I was going to yeah. say
0: though, it's the same thing though. He's talking about those intros
1: that yeah, they eat Before they, before they oh. even said a word, Dwight Yoakam might have been the best at the intro. Oh God, Pete and Anderson's guitars. Dwight hits, oh.
3: Oh, those were great! I just head, got my head up.
2: intros. I've got. uh I don't need your uh, the, the rocking chair in my head. That bam, bam, bam,
3: that opening. That boom, boom, boom. Golly, that's a great record. Awesome. I mean, you know, you just you you know it as soon as they come on. I mean, I, that's one of the things I love is just going back and listening to that. And you know, when you see them on the award show, the CMA Awards, you know, it's like Ronnie and Kicks. You know, you just hear those records come on there, and you go, Oh yeah, yep, t- I yeah. know I'm in for a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right.
2: Uh, well, I can't wait to see you next week when you come back in. Um, <laughs> okay, wait. Before you go, I heard you tell a
1: story about when you first got to Nashville and you got pulled into Chet's office, Chet Atkins. Would, if, it's, if it's shareable, would you mind? Yeah,
3: add? it's shareable. So um, one of the things that I did back then was, you know, we were trying to control some budgets, and Floyd Kramer came in, and he was a piano player, had a big record with Last Date, but mm-hmm. instrumentalists were starting to die away at that point. So he came in and he had an album cover where the piano was going to have embossed keys in foil, which just as I say it, it's expensive. You know, everybody else is just printing colors. That's all you do. You know, you take a picture and you put it in there and you put the four colors in the five colors, boom, you're done. This has got to be taken out. You've got to emboss it. Then you've got to color. It's a lot of money. You don't sell a lot of records. I'm (laughs) not doing this. (laughs) I'm not doing this. So I got a call. My <laughs> assistant said to me, Um, Chet wants to see you. So I went up there and, you know, Chet sits down, and he said, sit down. <laughs> okay. He said, you know, boy, he said, uh, people don't like you here. I had been in Nashville maybe 18 months. And you got called boy a lot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you did. Maybe my chat, but not yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even in spite of my size, that was one time. So he said that. He said, You know, you're from New York. You're Italian. You don't have any friends. So watch your step. Go. Okay. So I go down and see Jerry? And Jerry has this thing when he doesn't want to give you bad news, he rubs his face and he talks. <laughs> so. <laughs> He's okay. down there rubbing his face, and he said, you see, Chet? I said, God damn, yes, I did. What the hell? He said, well, he said, you know, Floyd is his brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh. <laughs> don't you think I needed to know that before? <laughs> Piece of information would have been good. Yeah. And then people always ask after we get through the whole thing. He said, did you approve the cover? I said, no, we didn't oh, do the oh. cover. No, oh. no, no, no. Okay, no.
2: look at you. Hey, oh, we it was still the right decision. Yeah. Still the right And point. I
3: mean, Floyd was a lovely man, and, and I didn't know, and I mean, at that point, that I started to dig further on things before I made decisions. You <laughs> know what I mean? I, I was still trying to figure it out. It, mistake on my part in terms of artist relations. That's
2: right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, man, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. It's man, been a blast. Uh, uh, Joe sure. Galante, you can uh, – uh, anything that we need to push for you, like uh, – I don't know. I don't feel like you've been giving. You an got anything you want you to want promote? I know
1: I mean, you're. I, know it's, you know. I
3: have no agenda. No, <laughs> no agenda. Okay. You know? It's one of those rare moments. Okay. All right. <laughs>
1: hey, uh, Joe's going to go into the Hall of Fame God, on cool October this? the 16th, and yeah. so you well can watch deserved. that stream. It's always really interesting, and then you can go find his plaque. And I hope your plaque looks like you. Uh, oh God. <laughs>
4: I think Some of
3: Vince told that story last year. He said uh, he went through and Mul and saw his plaque, uh, and he looked at Vince and he said, v- "Vince, he said you kind of look like L- L- Lon Chaney, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and, and Vince, Vince told that story on the stage when he was talking about the plaques. And as always, Vince is just the. The master of oh, it. The, yes, yeah. some of those plaques look a lot oh, like the god, people they're yeah.
1: supposed to, and some, some of them don't. And
3: you just got a high You know, just oh
4: god. Oh, <laughs> oh wow, this is this amazing. This looks so good. I'm
3: sure it'll be great. I'm I, sure. I mean, will. I'm, I still can't believe it, and, and I'm completely humbled by the whole thing. Well, congratulations! Thank, Thank you, you for very much. coming in anytime, guys. All
4: right.
2: Bye-bye. We're done? we got to
0: play the song. Okay, one more. Are you going to sing along? I'm going
2: to sing along. What? Because the
1: worst you can do is leave. This was the podcast, but now now it's over, but but that's that's okay. okay, Because you can listen (laughs) to the regular show (laughs) on On the radio (laughs) every day. It was the podcast.
2: Oh, someone signed that kid. (laughs) Kid's got a future. (laughs)